Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Davo here, and you are listening to Med Conversations. I'm joined by Rahul, who will be taking us through part three of our heart failure series on management. That's right. So to touch on where we left off, um, heart failure is a clinical syndrome resulting from structural or functional cardiac disorder that prevents proper feeling of blood or ejection of blood from the heart, which can occur through systolic or diastolic dysfunction. So we're going to start off talking about chronic heart failure management. We'll talk about some of the principles of heart failure management, the underlying etiologies and how to manage them, some pharmacological therapies, and then some other therapies later on, um, but we're not going to go too deep into them. Not really intern stuff, ECMO devices and so on. Mm. So in terms of the general principles of chronic heart failure management, what would you think are some of the goals? So two main goals that I think of in general management questions are how can we make them feel better and how can we improve the objective outcomes like their morbidity and their mortality. That's right. So two goals, clinical improvement or stabilization and reduction in morbidity and mortality in the long run. So this can be broken down into a few components. Um, First, you correct the systemic factors that are triggering heart failure or making it worse, things like diabetes, infection, thyroid dysfunction. Next, lifestyle factors. This is very popular in Monash. Um, So there's no strong evidence about this, but it's sort of based on just rationale, uh, physiologic rationale. Mm. Proponents would say that's because there's not much money to be made from exercise and heart failure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, drug reviews, so you can see things, drugs that contribute to heart failure. Then you can treat the underlying cause of heart failure, symptom relief from heart failure, and then refractory heart failure management through things like cardiac transplant, mechanical circulatory um, support, and device therapy. Sounds good. I'm excited. Okay, so let's start with lifestyle modification. What are some of the classic lifestyle modifications, Darvel? So smoking is particularly bad for atherosclerotic disease and also for lung disease, which can create a lot of the same symptoms. So you want to encourage them to quit smoking if they can. That's right, smoking cessation. Mm -hmm. What else? Alcohol restriction is pretty important as well. They'll have a fluid restriction, a lot of these patients, so you want them to keep under that with water. And uh, salt restriction is also very important. It's key in these people. Mm. So that minimizes your edema, the salt Mm. restriction. Two to three grams per day. Mm. The old chestnut weight loss, much easier said than done. And you aim for a 10% reduction in body weight. Good outcomes with 10% reduction in body weight, regardless of your starting weight. Mm -hmm. Other things are to remind the patient that their daily weights and their fluid balance are very important, especially in the later stages of heart. So the next section, drug review. So at the beginning of every patient consultation, my consultant will ask to be given the drug charts and he'll just review every single day to make sure there isn't something contributing to the problem. Yeah, so there's a lot of drugs that can contribute to heart failure. The main mechanisms through which they contribute or worsen heart failure are sodium sodium and water retention, negative ionotropy, if you remember ionotropy is cardiac contractility, Uh, and direct cardiotoxicity. There's a few drugs that are directly toxic to the heart. So those three mechanisms again, sodium and water retention, negative ionotropy, and direct cardiotoxicity. Okay. So important drugs to consider that are common include non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. of all evil. Yeah. And there's a study that shows that they just have increased risk of re-hospitalization if they're heart failure patients on NSAIDs. Other drugs include antiarrhythmic drugs. Most of them are negative inotropes, so they reduce your cardiac contractility. Mm. Some are even pro-arrhythmic for arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation, which are obviously dangerous. Mm. Particularly the class 1 and class 3 agents. 
ingredients of your Vaughan mm. Williams uh, So that's the, the sodium channel blockers and the potassium channel blockers, class one and three. Mm. Um, so really you want to use amiodarone if it's antiarrhythmic. Um, calcium channel blockers are another class that can affect uh, heart failure. There's mainly through negative ionotropy. Um, they can also cause some peripheral edema, particularly the vasoselective ones, that is the amlodipine and phenylodipine types. Mm. And these ones are shown to have a neutral effect on mortality overall. Mm, mm, mm. So, some of the other drugs, uh, chemotherapy agents are a great example of a directly cardiotoxic drug, and mm. it's irreversible. And this is why um, oncologists are obsessed with using nuclear medicine scans to get a really precise ejection fraction estimate before they start patients on these drugs. Mm. So that's just the tip of the iceberg on drug review, um, but those are some of the ones to watch out for. Mm. Now, in terms of treating the underlying etiology of heart failure, one of the biggest ones is hypertension. Mm. It's the primary cause in many patients, and it's uh, through an increased hemodynamic load that it mediates this effect. So we aim to decrease the preload and afterload in hypertensive patients. And this, so that's an important point. They want preload and afterload. Like I always used to think afterload because that's where the hypertension is. But it's important to reduce the amount of fluid going to the heart so it's not overstretched as well. That's right. Um, so we've, we're bottoming out on that Frank Starling mm. law if, mm. you, uh, if it's way too, way too much preload. Mm. Um, so main drugs used to control hypertension in the cardiac, cardiac failure patient are beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and ARBs and aldosterone antagonists. And that's because these ones are shown to improve survival. Beta blockers have the additional advantage of providing anti-anginal effect and atrial fibrillation rate control. As always with heart failure drugs, start low and go slow to avoid that initial decompensation of Mm. heart failure that can occur. Mm. And don't start it when they are decompensated. Mm. In terms of other drugs you can use for hypertension... We have loop diuretics, nitrates, hydralazine, and some vasoselective calcium channel blockers, which we spoke about already. Their, uh, their benefit is less proven, but can be used in resistant patients. Okay, another underlying etiology in heart failure is renovascular disease. This is things like renal artery stenosis. We won't go into this too much, but it can basically increase your blood pressure um, and worsen heart failure. Revascularization through stenting of the uh, renal artery stenosis is not that proven yet and is only used in specialized cases. Ischemic heart disease has to be one of the biggest causes of heart failure. Um, This is the most common cause of cardiomyopathy with 50 to 75% uh, of cardiomyopathy is caused by ischemic heart disease. There are two types of ischemic heart disease cardiomyopathy. One is where you have just a big old plain MI and you now have a bit of the heart wall which is not functioning properly because it's dead. The other is where you get chronic ischemic dysfunction. These are basically where you've got chronic atheromatous plaque or whatever it is that's causing your ischemic heart disease in this area of the heart that aren't getting enough blood supply, so they're not functioning optimally. Now, you can... First step is to give lifestyle therapy and relieve anginal symptoms. What's the name for that second type, Rahul? We oh, forgot the best part. Hibernating myocardium <laughs> is the name of that chronic ischemic dysfunction. Mm, I like um, that. So you can first start with relieving the angina and lifestyle therapy, as we already discussed. Past that, you can revascularize them with stents or a cabbage for symptoms and possibly prognosis. There's new studies in that area. Mm. This this benefit is particularly seen in hibernating myocardium. Sounds good. Another underlying etiology that's important to be treated is valvular disease. Now, you can either get valvular disease causing your heart failure 
Or you can get heart failure, which then causes your valvular disease through, say, a dilated cardiomyopathy, pulling the leaflets of the mitral valve apart. Regardless of whether it's primary or secondary, it still creates extra load on the ventricles, and repair can improve function and symptoms. Do you have anything to add on that, Davil? It sounds like you've covered it pretty well, Rahul. Mm. So to run through those main ones again, it's hypertension, renovascular disease, ischemic heart disease, and valvular disease. There are a lot of other factors like alcohol, sleep apnea, malnutrition, thyroid disease, and immune disease, which can impair your left ventricular ejection ejection fraction, but um, they're not as common and it's not worth going into them in detail. They're very case-specific. So on to pharmacologic therapy for heart failure now. So again, the goals of therapy are to improve symptoms, uh, to slow or reverse deterioration in myocardial function, reduce mortality... Now, there's an interesting study that shows that an aggressive strategy with your therapy, guided by a BNP, which is a marker of heart failure, actually lowers your mortality. So this is not widely done in any Melbourne hospitals that I know of. In the country hospital I'm at at the moment, they do it. Mm. But um, yeah, it's not widely done in Australia yet, probably because the BNP is expensive. Mm. Um, So there are other goals of therapy as well. That's to prevent arrhythmias. and treatment of other exacerbating factors like anemia, but they are pretty self-evident. So we'll run through some of the pharmacological stuff now. Okay, so Davor, in terms of symptom reduction, what drugs are we looking at that reduce the symptoms of heart failure? So digoxin can help. It's a positive inotrope, so it helps the heart beat better. Mm -hmm. Diuretics, getting the fluid off, getting it off their lungs, make them feel better. Totally. Beta blockers reduces the sympathetic drive as well. So less of that angsty, anxiety, Mm. constant adrenaline rush, fight Mm. or flight response thing. And uh, ACE inhibitors and um, ARBs as well will act as a diuretic to some extent and reduce fluid too. Mm, That's right. Okay, so those are the symptom reduction ones. In terms of the survival benefit, and note there is some overlap, obviously, of ones that give you both symptom and survival. Mm. Uh, And also it's important to note that which one of these is not on the list for survival benefit, Tavo? So digoxin. Digoxin. New studies are showing it has no survival benefit. It's just good for symptoms. Everyone's bullying digoxin in the research world at the moment. It helped us for so long, (laughs) and now it's just getting bullied and picked on. Okay. Um, so some of the survival benefit ones, uh, what are they, Darla? So diuretics help. This is actually news to me. I'm glad to hear that because I spend a lot of my day pushing and pulling fluid off people. So mm. I'm glad it does make some kind of benefit to diuretics survival. Diuretics do benefit your mortality. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a randomized control trial. Beta blockers as well, as long as you don't start them when they're acutely decompensated. Mm-hmm. ACE inhibitors and ARBs. So they help with vascular remodeling and they break that cycle of the renin-angiotensin system. The holy system. Mm. If you don't know that system, you need to be acquainted with it. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but it is very important. Hydralazine and nitrates. In very specific people or or cases, hydralazine and nitrates can benefit your mortality. They're both vasodilators, for those of you who don't know. Mm. Um, And aldosterone antagonists, also known as potassium-sparing diuretics, like spironolactone. So that has a kind of a, a ceiling as to how much it works. So there's no real point in giving them more than 25 milligrams because that's where the mortality benefit is. And note there are potassium-sparing diuretics that are not aldosterone antagonists, like amylaride, that don't confer the same benefits. Of course, so. yeah. Um, in terms of order of therapy, what do we normally start first, Abel? So if someone comes in with acute decompensating heart failure... First you do a BNP. That's, <laughs> that's my rule. All right. uh, so you give them some phrismide, get that fluid off... 
And then <clears throat> once it's a little bit more stable, you start an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. And then once it's really stable heart failure, you start low and go slow with the beta blocker. That's right. Okay. And then in certain cases, once you've optimized all that therapy, you can add that other stuff we were talking about, like aldosterone antagonist, hydralazine and nitrates, um, and digoxin in some people. Okay. Mm. So that does reduce hospitalization, presumably because it doesn't help because it does help with symptoms, but it doesn't reduce mortality. Mm, that's right. Okay. So just a quick touch on the renin ang- ang- angiotensin aldosterone system. Okay. So it's I recommend you look at a diagram of this. They're available on Google. But basically, you've got less uh, circulating volume through the kidneys, the, and this ju- juxtaglomerular complex gets activated. It increases your renin secretion to get more get more fluid through the kidneys. Um, this sets off your angiotensin, which goes through your angiotensin converting enzyme, comes out the other side, angiotensin two, and then that causes vasoconstriction of the arterioles, releases aldosterone, and pulls in more um, sodium and water, so you get more circulating blood volume because the kidney thinks that there's not enough blood going around or that it's not reaching it properly. So it tries to get it happening more. In fact, it just thinks that this is happening because the heart is not pumping well enough to get enough blood through that kidney. Okay, so what we're trying to do with these drugs is we're trying to block that somewhere along the way. Otherwise, it keeps building up upon itself and that uh, makes your heart failure worse. But again, I would advise looking at a diagram on the internet because it, you, you won't understand it the first time you hear it. At least I didn't. As good as your powers of oration are, Rahul, I do recommend that. Mm, there we are. All right, so talking about diuretics. So how do diuretics cause symptoms, Double? So sodium and water retention leads to congestive symptoms. You've got too much fluid on the lungs. You've got too much peripheral edema, Mm. too much fluid in your portal system. It's simple. It's pump failure. Mm. The pump cannot pump that much water. Mm. Okay. Um, So, yeah, there was a systematic review that showed reduced mortality with diuretics. Uh, And what's the most common one that us interns banter around with? So, furosemide. Furosemide. Furosemide, as the (laughs) Americans call it. So, we generally start with doses around 20 to 40 milligrams, and you keep giving it to them. The the goal of therapy here is euvolemia. So, Mm. you want to listen to their lungs, make sure there's no crackles. What else? Let's you know someone's... So, you look at their JVP, make sure that's coming down, and look at their legs as well. So, Mm. draw your little legs and then mark each day how far up the fluid is. And be proud when you look (laughs) at your notes and see the effect that your your fruzamide has had. Um, So, we're aiming for about one kilogram of weight loss per day. That's Mm. a safe amount to lose. Yeah, you don't want to go too hard. That's an important point. These old people will not tolerate it. Okay. Um, And it's really important to be checking the UECs. Mm the urea and electrolytes to make sure you haven't right. put them in renal failure. Yeah, if you think about how diuretics work, you know, that's you, if you if you're removing too much fluid, you're actually just you know, hypoperfusing the kidneys, which will lead them to renal failure. You can also get electrolyte imbalances, hypokalemia in particular. Hypokalemia in particular. That's right. Um, thiazides can be added um, if you're not getting that right amount of effect with your furosemide. Um, and again, monitor your renal function carefully. So the next most important drug along the line. What's that, Double? ACE inhibitors. That's right. And going back to that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, you're breaking it up at the ACE, the angiotensin-converting enzyme in the lungs. Okay, so you're stopping that whole pathway of of things. Um, So they're shown to improve survival in people with a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 40%. So basically anyone who has... Anyone who has uh, any sort of structural heart disease should be on an ACE inhibitor. That's what the evidence says. All right, so give us a couple of examples of ACE inhibitor, Dava. What's the, what's so the theme Perindopril here? is my favorite. Uh, there's also Ramapril, Lisinopril, and Enalapril. So all the prills. They're all about the same um, in terms of mortality benefits, so whatever. But people use Perindopril because it's a once-daily dose, so patients can get around that easily. Um, side effect-wise, what do we come back to? 
So high potassium is a common one and uh, your renal function can go off as well. Bam. So they're actually good for renal function as long as you have functioning kidneys. Mm. But if you have dysfunctional kidneys, mm. then they're not good for your renal function. Again, start low, go slow. Okay. So they all have target doses that you've got to hit. Um, there's a big guideline... Uh, guidelines for them you got to try and hit those target doses for your patient you basically increase it until they can't tolerate it anymore and you get you get survival benefit for every one of those increases until you hit that target dose okay so what's the next thing we'd add on to uh, a patient like this so maximized on diuretics maximized on ace inhibitors where are we going next they're pretty stable i would want to put them on beta blockers at this point that's right. Now, I just get the feeling a lot of people don't know how beta blockers work. I, for one, didn't really understand how beta blockers work in half failure until recently, uh, until I did this podcast, actually. Um, so, Davo, why don't you tell me how beta blockers work? So they inhi- Throw you under the bus here. <laughs> <laughs> so they inhibit sympathetic activation, um, which then somehow reduces remodeling. I don't think that's very well understood. That's right. Uh, and it can, they reduce chronic beta stimulation, which causes down-regulation regula- of beta receptors. Yeah, so what it means there is that if you don't give someone beta blockers, they're constantly getting sympathetically stimulated through these beta receptors. And eventually the heart goes, you know what, I'm going to turn off some of these beta receptors because this is too much, this is too much. So they actually reduce the amount of beta receptors. Then if they ever get an insult where they actually need those beta receptors to respond to said insult, whether it's physiologic, like going for a run, or something like infection, uh, their heart can't actually step up to the step up to the plate. So by giving them a beta blocker, you stop that down regulation, as well as inhibiting sympathetic activation. And catecholamines are directly toxic to the heart. Um, so that might be how this re- reducing of remodeling comes about. It's um, interesting to note that what you're saying now would have been heresy 20 years ago, Rahul. Heresy. For a long time, beta blockers were an absolute contraindication in heart failure, and then didn't know that. Yeah, and then someone started doing studies and realised it was actually one of the few drugs we have that improves mortality. Well, there you go. Now, in terms of beta blocker selection, this does matter, unlike ACE inhibitors. Okay, so there are some of the old school beta blockers, and this might be the reason. The old school beta blockers are not good for your cardiac mortality, but these new selective ones are. So these include carvedilol, metoprolol, long acting. Bisoprolol and nebivolol. So those are the main cardio-selective ones you hear about. Um, usually, they improve survival in NYHA 2 to 4 heart failure. If you don't know what that is, you need to go back and have a listen to our heart failure evaluation uh, podcast. Okay. And any any survival benefit here, can you tell me, is it additive to the ACE inhibitors, Davo? It is, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it improves even more upon those great benefits, those great gains you're seeing from the ACE inhibitors already. So I just want to point out with that list that metoprolol slow release is uh, beneficial, but normal metoprolol isn't. And I have a lot of patients that come in with heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and you start them on kind of metoprolol BD twice a day, which is the normal metoprolol, to get that under control. But then you have to convert that to metoprolol slow release on discharge That's to right. make sure that they get that mortality it benefit. speaks the truth. The problem is metoprolol slow release is expensive, okay? So that's probably why a lot of people don't end up doing it. They might also not know this little little piece of information, but you can share this from now on, okay? Um, they have target doses like ACE inhibitors, certain levels you've got to hit. And what are the main things you worry about in someone with a beta blocker? When you're starting a beta blocker, what would you warn them about? What would you be looking out for? So you've got to look at the ops chart and make sure that they're not hypertensive. That's probably the first thing I look at. And also to make sure that they're not bradycardic. Mm-hmm. You don't want to create your own met calls. Mm-hmm. And then also asthma is, the, is another comorbidity that I often look for. 
Yeah, that's right. So it can uh, it can make your asthma worse by blocking those beta receptors. Okay. The other thing is in AV block, atrioventricular block or heart block, it can make that worse. So if someone has secondary, second degree or third degree AV block, it's an absolute contraindication. Okay. Um, and then resting limb ischemia is another thing. If someone's already got a limb that's pretty much you know dying or just while they're sitting there, you add a beta blocker in and reduce that contractility, there's a chance that that limb might just drop off. So watch out for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Now, let's say we couldn't get one of our patients on an ACE inhibitor, Dava. What are, what are our options here? Were they coughing? Yeah, this patient's coughing up something nasty. Too much bradykinin. Yeah, way too much bradykinin. Mm-hmm. So you might use an angiotensin II receptor blocker, affectionately known as ARBs, and usually ending in sartan of some sort. So tell me sartan, something like that. That's right. So they're as or less, maybe slightly less effective than ACE inhibitors, but useful in those with cough. And for those of you smart cookies out there who are thinking, hey, why don't we just add an ACE inhibitor and an angiotensin receptor blocker? Why don't we do that, double? Because the CHARM added trial showed that there was no mortality benefit. Mm, that's right. Um, and the emphasis heart failure trial showed that there was an efficacy of aldosterone antagonist when added instead of ACE inhibitors and ARBs, but do not add all three. So that's not recommended. Okay, so on to some of the more specific ones. Uh Hydralazine and nitrates. Yeah. So as you mentioned before, that's only for specific subpopulations of patients. How do they work? So they increase vasodilation, so they reduce preload and afterload. And as we discussed before, you want to reduce the preload so we get back on the optimum section of the Frank Starling curve. And we want to reduce afterload just so the heart doesn't have as much to push against. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, again, it's selected patients with systolic dysfunction. Um, and particularly black people is what the studies have shown. Um, so I guess that was a subgroup analysis from the studies that they did on this. Um, and you'd only use this in people with NYHA 3 or 4 heart failure who are already optimized on all that other stuff. Or people who just couldn't take an ACE inhibitor or an ARB due to intolerance. Okay, so pretty specific. Now, digoxin? Foxglove. Foxglove, the cardiac glycoside. Been around for ages. Ages and ages, okay? So... All these new studies are showing that it doesn't reduce mortality. There's no mortality benefit in heart failure from digoxin, okay? Um, but it does control symptoms, especially in those with systolic dysfunction. It's a, it's a positive inotrope, so that's probably the way that that's mediated. And because it's controlling those symptoms, what does that lead to, Dival? There you can see. Reduced hospitalization. Yeah, so you can keep those people out of your hospital, which is always nice for you and them, okay? You can also be used as rate control in atrial fibrillation. So if you have a heart failure patient who's... You know, constantly decompensating um, and constantly in atrial fib, maybe digoxin's a good option for them. Particularly if they have low blood pressure mm. because you can't use beta blockers in patients like that. Yeah, it's tough, okay? Um, yeah, so those who are still in heart failure, they're already optimized on all the good stuff, all the good stuff we've talked about. You can add, add digoxin, okay? Now, in terms of other drugs that can be used in heart failure, statins in heart failure alone don't show any benefit, just from the heart failure point of view. But obviously, if you have an underlying ischemic heart disease or you want to prevent them from getting um, you know, hyperlipidemia-related effects on the heart, it's a good idea to add a statin. Which everyone does. We should probably just put them in the water. Right in that water supply. Geriatricians hate them because they are probably worse in dementia. That's what studies are suggesting. And also create myalgia and myopathy in these older patients and really it's quite refreshing to hear from a geriatrician because they have uh 
realistic goals for these elderly patients who aren't going to be, you know, dying of stroke or heart attack. They're actually just trying to maintain themselves on their pins and not be demented all the time. That's right. <laughs> um, sorry, that was harsh. Uh, then you got your vasoselective calcium channel blockers. So these are your dihydropyridines, your amlodipine, philodipine, neutral effect on mortality. Um, but the non-vasoselectives, so your non-dihydropyridines, <laughs> i.e. your... Diltiazem and your verapamil. Yeah, they might have a deleterious effect. So be careful with those ones. Good okay. word. Yeah, that is a good word. Now, other therapies. So that's all your pharmacological stuff. So now if you know that, you're, you're a champion, you're on top of heart failure. But in terms of people who are optimizing all those drugs we were talking about before, still in you know horrible heart failure and they're not getting better, what can you do, Darvo? So, you, again, look at the underlying cause. So revascularization might be useful, particularly if they, if they have that hibernating myocardium. That's right. Then there's device therapy as well. So you might look at putting in a defibrillator or cardiac resynchronization therapy can be helpful. Pacemakers for some causes of heart failure. Mm. So specific indications for them and specific criteria to get them in someone. Don't worry about that too much. Just know they exist, I think, at this point in time. Probably not intern decisions. Hmm. And then more advanced stuff for refractory heart failure? So left ventricular assist devices can be used. Mm -hmm. And then heart transplants as well. But that Mm. obviously is a very difficult process. Yeah, very specific, very difficult, specific criteria. In terms of the left ventricular assist devices, uh, usually they're bridging therapy for someone who needs a transplant. Obviously, there aren't that many hearts going around. So, by the way, I'd like to put in my chip for organ donation here because there are people out there who need your heart more than you do. Give Should be an opt-out process. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, we just got political there. Political. <laughs> um, but so ventricular assist device is usually bridging therapy until they get there. Um, but in a few people who have no chance of getting a heart transplant, really not looking good, they use them as destination therapy. And there's only a couple of devices that are used for that. But uh, yeah, that's the case with that. Okay, so that's everything we're going to talk about for heart failure management today. I hope that was illuminating uh, and enjoyable. Um, if you have any feedback, please let us know on the Facebook page. There will be a Quizlet available ASAP. Um, anything to add, Double? Thank you very much, Rahul. No I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Med Conversations.